Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Sharice Bullock-Bailey, who's the Chief Strategy and Partnership Officer for Ghetto Film School. I'm gonna editorialize a little bit because me and Sharice actually have known each other for quite a while. We go back to my former life and I guess our collective former lives in finance. Yeah, um, we correct. were both we were both at Goldman Sachs together. And that seems like a lifetime ago in many different ways, but we did have that common experience for many years working at the firm. And I often think back to another experience that we had together, which I don't often, often talk about, but anyone who knows me knows it's an indelible part of a New York experience, which is having, we went through 9-11 together. And much of my remembrances of that experience very specifically is the fact of us sort of leaving Goldman's office together, walking out of Manhattan, this ragtag group of random Goldman people, you being the only one I really knew and a bunch of others who kind of came along as everyone was kind of dealing with this very um, real-time traumatic experience. I often tell people 9-11 for many of us was not a, a news event. It was something that we experienced being in the, literally in the middle of it. And we walked from Goldman, downtown Manhattan, across the Manhattan Bridge and finally to my house. Um, and where yeah. people were able to clean up and use a landline, these things that, you know, cell phones were not what they were today. Then they were not what they are today. So we have all these traumatic experiences together, but more good experiences of friendship over now over decade of friendship. And um, it's, I'm excited to have you on the show, but then also we're talking to each other in the middle of um, the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So we're in another, I think, defining moment in New York history and probably our national and global history as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the context of us having this conversation, which I think begs for a very important one. So all that to editorialize, I'm really excited to have you here. It is an absolute honor and pleasure, Phil. I think the good news is that we're not running for our lives on this phone call. We, exactly. <laughs> we have the comfort of sitting in our homes and the leverage of technology, you know, just to, to hear you recount the story, you know, and this has become the story of the turn of the century, I believe here, not only in New York, but globally is looking at the ways that technology and our connectivity have both advanced and challenged culture. And I think there have been some great leaps, you know, in 20 years in a major way, the fact that we can continue nearly seamlessly to go on with conversations like this one, which are absolutely important, whether they're five blocks away or five continents away. But at the same time, I think that a general distance in connecting people and their experiences has also been an outcome of extreme technology or extreme privilege. And so uh, the way that storytelling can democratize our cultural connection uh, to one another is is absolutely at the heart of, of what uh, Ghetto Film School does and in the heart of what I've really um, 
centered my career around since our time at Goldman. I think a funny story that I'll just share is, and you may know this, you know, right after 9-11, the Tribeca Film Festival immediately sprung its roots. And many of us, and I was definitely at the forefront of this, volunteered at that festival. And what it did was, you know, got your mind off of, you know, the immediate sort of smoke and smoldering um, tragedy around us, physically around us, but spiritually, it really lifted us all up and connected us to something much greater, which is the power of connecting to one another through our stories. This immense power for storytelling to heal, to illuminate, and to innovate, as it were. And so now we're in this sort of virtual world. You know, VR is an AR and all of these new technologies are an absolute result of trying to stretch the boundaries of storytelling. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I love ghetto film school, you know, GFS, as we call it affectionately, so we pride ourselves on teaching professional and valuable skills to young filmmakers. And they're trained by experts from their craft and from their devoted area of studies and storytelling. And oftentimes in, uh, in our communities, we know that art programs typically don't serve as art programs. They are sort of masquerading as, you know, some sort of social service or asthma program or something that is not of the artistic ilk. And the the fact that we can unabashedly focus on art in our community, and we're in Los Angeles, New York, and London now, the actual art and craft of storytelling, we are truly better for it to be able to recognize students for their talent and not for any other modicum of access or privilege. I want to really get into the ghetto film school story, because like I said, we've had this this shared experience of having started our respective careers, at least when our careers intersected in finance, you know, working on Wall Street in literally one of the most prestigious and or infamous, depending on one's perspective, firms to spend one's time. And since that moment, you've had this arc that has taken you into the world of stories that has taken you into the world of education, has made you a very intricate part of the art and cultural world. So I want to hear a little bit more of, of that journey and then how it ties directly into Ghetto Film School. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to take it back to 2000 in, in terms of what was happening at that time, you know, as you noted, we were turn of the century. I'm working at Goldman in the hedge fund group. And a lot of the work at that time really was the boom and burst of economic possibility. And so serving clients, you know, who are high net worth individuals and, and hedge fund leaders mostly meant you're servicing them in their place of play and leisure. And at that time, because of the abundance of the economy, that meant working in philanthropy and charity events and really getting an eye into the windows of the hearts of top investors, which is really precious and valuable insight, right? So if you were not trading all day, what would you spend your day doing? Perhaps it's, you know, in being invested in the environment or in the arts or in, uh, you know, poverty or food security. And one of the things I got drawn to very quickly is the power of art in the world of our investment colleagues and community. And so that was always a, a passion of mine. Storytelling I actually had spent my junior year 
at Penn as an undergrad studying at the Cannes Film Festival. And I think it was then that I was already on my way to sort of Goldman and sort of a, a very traditional business training. But I realized that there is a business uh, in storytelling and filmmaking. It is global and it is exciting. It's not just about sort of uh, the return on the investment. For me, it became very clearly about the return on impact. And so if there's anything that's sort of taken, sort of been my surfboard through this career arc, it's really been this idea that as much as return on investment is um, the highest order for all partners, all investors, you know, really all of us as we define value. This idea that impact has a tremendous value and place in the hearts and minds and also the valuation of how uh, leaders define their legacy became really deeply rooted into my DNA at that time. And so just to switch tracks, you know, the history of GFS, GFS was started by an amazing leader, Joe Hall. He actually was a, a former social worker in the Bronx in the year 2000. So here we all are in setback in tw- you know, 20 years ago. And during the 90s, Giuliana, uh, Giuliani era, which we remember, I'm sure, very intimately in our own ways, there were none, uh, you know, few, if any, structured opportunities in schools for arts education. So Joe really wanted to develop a program that was a creative option for young people in the neighborhood. And the goal was to give the teenagers of the South Bronx in a safe environment that would honor that creativity, develop that creativity, celebrate it. And it started with an eight-week course. He had some former classmates from USC, and they literally sort of migrated the USC experience into an eight-week seminar for these students. So clips of films and other you know, aspects of the curriculum were modified to give these young people a real-world experience. And at that time, you know, after transitioning out of my time at Goldman, I really leveraged all of those skills into philanthropy. I ended up working at an intermediary funder, a unit called Listen Up. We would get larger tranches of funding from foundations like the Ford Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, the Adobe Foundation, some corporate partners as well. And we would build capacity in those institutions globally that were helping young and emerging filmmakers develop a voice and really a capaciousness in the creative industry. And what did that look like? That looked like seven years of my life living out of a suitcase, using all of my sort of Goldman smarts and financial skill and rigor and communication background to create a brand, to create strategic partnerships, to create a voice and a platform for young and emerging artists globally. We served 150 organizations I knew them all very intimately in their approach and their impact. And the organization that I would say always stood out to me that I, I really uh, stuck with was GFS, the Ghetto Film School. So I met them in 2003 at the start of my transition into that philanthropic role. And what I, I loved about the organization and still do is they were asking young people to create their own stories and they were unabashedly finding the resources to make it happen. You know, sort of the Coppola family for kids who didn't have an uncle or, you know, family in the industry, we would find the right resources and marry that with the original, authentic and brave voices of these young people. And I say we back then because GFS is and always has been a family. And so even as a a funder and a partner over the years, 
And I wouldn't come on full time to GFS until 2017. But I would, you know, always support at the galas and bring folks together, folks like Yusuf Kassim and Dan Cherry from Advertising World, Stanley Lumax, real titans, um, folks that we all came up with. And, and really, it was about bringing new supporters to the family at GFS. And so, you know, in terms of the, the history, there was a big leap for GFS in 2014 with the help of James Murdoch, 21st Century Fox, GFS expanded nationally to Los Angeles. And, and now we have this, you know, coast to coast campus experience. And this year, even GFS is uh, launching into the London offices as well. And so back to where I have been in my career, it really looks like moving from finance directly into philanthropy and understanding this transition between return on investment, how important that remains, and then return on impact. And then in my career, I ended up producing an Emmy-nominated film circa 2009 called Off and Running. And that was a real pivotal point for me, not only as a producer, a creative, but in terms of actually quantifying how important those financial skill sets are in getting stories made. And, and I want to jump in real quick because I think, you know, you unpacked a lot, which is also, you know, that ROI term. Like I write a lot and I've talked a lot about culture. And what I typically say is like, you know, if you're talking about return on investment, you're not talking about culture, right? Because if you're going into brand organizations and marketing companies and you're laying out opportunities and programs that are, are very much tied to a cultural perspective. They're about shared value. They're about community. They're not always going to directly be measurable in terms of how they're, and to use your other language, impacting, right? Absolutely. You know, so I want to drill down on that a little bit more because, you know, clearly you were able to take that financial perspective and then tie it to another world, but there's some lessons in there and there's some similarities that make them both applicable and sticky Absolutely. to one another. Yes. I think it's really about a translation uh, between the two and those translations rely in one, relationships, two, the values or the mission that's shared across both the partners and the sort of stakeholders, but more importantly, the community or the audience that we're looking to impact. There's always someone on the other side of the equation. Always. Everything we do is a, in a society, you know, in terms of investment, in terms of business, there's always either a customer or a partner, you know, there's a, a some a reciprocal entity to engage with. And so, you know, between looking at those relationships and looking at the values that are shared, you can cross walk almost pretty directly between the outcome that an investor is looking to sort of gain, as well as on the other side, the user, the audience, the community member, if you will. And so, you know, I think the last piece that I would share in terms of what has made this crosswalking somewhat seamless in, throughout my career has always been the authenticity and the connection to the language and to the culture, right? So culture is what we do. 
right? And to your point, you can't always put a price tag on the culture or the access, or sometimes it's just the timing, right? But what you can do is you can use relentless research and in your authentic power in place and what you do every day, dig so deeply into it that it's undeniable. Be so rigorously specific and who you are and how you do it, that it cannot ever be mitigated. And so I think those were the things for me that always were an advantage, right? It was the relationships, 20-year relationships, being able to pick up the phone and call you, a call about Carlotti, call folks who are titans and friends from an investment culture, because that's what Goldman was. It was a culture. It was a business. It was an environment. It's a culture in every organization that I've been a part of going forward into really being in the leadership team here at Ghetto Film School has been about the culture. And it's been about those things that define us, that can be communicated, that can be carried over, that sometimes can be taught, but for the most part, really need to be experienced. And, and I think just using all of those configurations around the relationships, you know, and being able to translate and communicate the values that are shared. And then also really failing forward every day. You know, you got to put up shots. (laughs) And, you know, I think one of the learning lessons of a time like now, and we're seeing it over and over again, as we're in this portal of looking towards, well, what's going to define our society next, right? And there's some of us who have been doing what we've been doing. We're going to do it harder. We're going to do it you know, more intensely, there's some of us who are going to lean into the strategy of saying, hey, this is a completely new future. I'm going to cut bait, switch. Let's do something completely different. And then I think there are others of us who are and will continue to be a bridge because we are deep into the research, the history, uh, the stories, right? We have those relationships that bridge as you put it, from this return on investment culture to this return on impact culture. And that comes with, you know, a great deal of time and practice in the game, you know, and holding and creating spaces for people to engage, to develop ourselves in practice. You know, I think that deep dive in many regards, you've been doing this for some time now, and I've just been watching and watching and watching and And now to be a part of it, it's groundbreaking because you are a bridge. You're translating all of these elements of successful influence as well as culture across sectors. And at our very best, that's what we're doing. And I think we're so so deep that we can be broad across sectors. And I agree that the culture piece is, is in everything that we do. And we have a few things going on all at the same time, right? We have clearly a a societal challenge with the COVID-19 pandemic that has, I think, revealed many of the kind of standard issues that we've had in society. If there were, if you had doubts about them or some of them were debatable, I think COVID-19 has kind of ripped the Band-Aid off of, of some of these things. But in a more kind of immediate sense, right? You're in a in a world that has relied on many facets of the kind of 
pre-existing model, right? You remarked on traveling a lot, like living on a on a plane. There's a high level of events that happen within these spaces, whether it's the events that GFS does or other film events, Tribeca, Cannes Film Festival was mentioned. There's a kind of an event screening focused in the world of, of film, which kind of comes naturally through the medium. And there's sort of the geography that has to do with creating film, right? It requires crew, people, you know, craft services, you know, of some sort. It requires all these different things that that are bodies together. And now we're, at least in the near term, however that near term is measured, in a reality where some of those things are not going to happen. And maybe we have to reimagine them. Have you started to give some thought, even in a theoretical way, of, of what the world is going to look like from a creative perspective, particularly as it relates to film? Absolutely. You know, I think it's a great way to lay it out, to think about those people-to-people experiences that we've become culturally so accustomed to and relied on as a way of doing business, sometimes practically and sometimes quite opportunistically. And so, you know, on a very practical level at GFS, you know, one of the amazing things that I've been a part of and witnessed and seen coming to form is that creative people never stops. You know, they never stop being creative, right? They are going to find a way to invent and reposition and push forward. And so very seamlessly, even for our programs, we went virtual and it wasn't even a question. It's like, we get together, we make films every Saturday. Our groups in LA, groups in New York are using, actually, you know, have have come up with their own proxies for technology, be it Zoom or Adobe Connect. And, you know, we had a hundred young people in New York, LA and London in a masterclass with Spike Jones last week. And it was like, this is the future, you know? It was already in the works, matching the exclusivity of these teaching experiences with the inclusivity of our brand and our heart actually came together very, very well. And we were ready to make that virtual switch. So, you know, on a very practical and sort of localized level, the teaching piece of it has been very automatic and exciting. And I think that reimagining is a a great opportunity for us to think about our big events like the table read, which you can do absolutely virtually. Right. Staged readings. We have our one of our biggest events of the year coming up in June, which will be a table read that will go on, uh, you know, in, in a similar way, but reimagined because we won't be able to bring all these great young artists and directors and actors in the same room. But we will have be able to create the GFS experience and vibe that is both elite and inclusive. Now, in terms of the industry and how the demand, I would say, the demand is what's driving and a much larger musing my perspective on how things will shift. I think everyone, to some extent, is on a relative pause. Some organizations are looking at that pause in terms of sort of the next three months. Some are looking deep into 2021. And that's really based on business model and also where you sit in the geography of uh, creative industry. You know, for physical production and for studios, you know, coming to a grinding halt means a real definite rethinking of how you get physical production back up and going so that it's number one, safe, and number two, meets the creative objective of your entire brand and unit. 
And so that's going to be its own somewhat unique and irreplaceable process because physical production does, as you listed, lots of credits at the end of a film rely on many people operating at the same time, sometimes in the same place. I think with the exception of animation, of course, and you know, so many new technologies, CGI, there's so many realms of creation where we know we can get a visual product. But again, that would be the biggest distinction. I would say super creative for animation and new technologies, um, more process uh, driven and safety driven for physical production entities. And thank goodness for the power of stream. You know, I think what we've learned and barring back from our financial days, I follow Fang. Seriously, not only because I think stream has completely revolutionized how we binge consume media, but also the catalog to which we have available at a voice call, you know, and um, that in itself has been available for some time when you look at folks who are cord cutters now, folks who will digital natives who are growing up are cord nevers never, ever will know what cable looks like or television. They may have just picked up a screen because now, hey, we've got 20 extra hours a week, right, to consume. Exactly. And then, you know, the last point, just in terms of reimagining the future, you know, I think travel has been a major part of, I know, your life. When I think about all of the amazing work we've done throughout Europe and Asia, similarly for me, you know, um, building my career as a global expert in both youth and independent media, nothing replaces being in the room with someone and touching them at that moment in time. And we will we will always want that experience. And so whether it is that 25 person curated master talk that you're giving around the culture and, you know, a creative industry, or it's a large scale music and content festival like Coachella or, you know, Glastonbury, all of these live in-person experiences are now undergoing reimagining themselves and also reshaping what is possible. So I think more soon, my prediction is, you know, very unique and interesting ways to time shift how people are experiencing these events with socially distanced space. Obviously, masks are the future. You cannot keep people from connecting to one another or craving that experience. And so I think both innovatively, virtually, but definitely there's going to be a live production element that that we have an opportunity to experience going forward, really at the hands of the creators, folks who run, you know, major art fairs and music festivals and folks like ourselves who are engaged in a lot of thought leadership where people value not just hearing your recording, they want that live essence, that spark that's in the room. The reason why we go to the theater, why we go to these live shows, um, the reason why you want to see the article, a genuine article of art, right, in person at a museum or at an art market or at a film festival, right? To sit in that screen, to breathe the air, to hear the little clicks, you know, to be a part of that energetic life force, which is experience. Yeah. So experience and experiential culture will never go away. Right? Yeah, I mean, you and I are experiencing something now, you know, yeah. this is a podcast, but I'm looking at you on Squadcast and there's energy, right? Yeah. In power in that. Now, how we break through to that next frontier during uncertain times really revolves around creating certainty. 
yeah. in various aspects of our work. And I think we'll see some of that coming up this summer in certain markets. I certainly am excited. I'm going to be participating in a virtual, the Freeze Art Fair would have taken place in New York this weekend. Freeze is a major partner of GFS and Deutsche Bank. And I'm excited to see some of these, you know, digital galleries. But I'm, I'm looking to the leaders of the culture and I'm looking at ourselves to say, well, this is how we're going to constantly create certainty of both experience and quality of the culture at every level. Do you think certainty also ties to this idea of being resourced in in the sense that when I've spoken to folks over the past few weeks um, in this conversation around where are resources going to be allocated, right? We're seeing incredible shifts of of wealth that is that is moving or being levers being pushed through terms around relief and and helping people to varying degrees of efficacy right being not a political show i'm not going to dive deep into where that is working and where it's not working but i do think that this idea of resource allocation has been it was important before and it's going to be even more important going forward because now there's an idea of somewhat of a scarcity model, right? We're seeing organizations pair back, not just in terms of the human beings that work for them, but what are they spending on events? What are they spending on activations? What are they spending just on their marketing in general, right? right. And, and a lot of culture institutions require resources in order to make them go. What are some, some thoughts around tying or linking this idea of certainty to resource allocation and and contributions, whether from philanthropic sources or from for-profit organizations that take part in these kind of worlds? Absolutely. You know, I, I think one thing I'll pick up on is, you know, resource, as we know, is quantified in many different ways. Mm-hmm. So whether it's financial, it's time, it's genius, it's the innovators that who need to be resourced, of course, to come up with solutions. But also it's this tremendous gift of the resource of time that we all have now. Right. And so time has been so illusory in terms of resource, I would say mobilization, right? Mm -hmm. Less allocation, but more resource mobilization. What's urgent? What's certain to have impact? And right now, I think people are moving very urgently in a time sensitive way about uh, mobilizing their resources where they know they will have certain impact. Right. I feel more comfortable investing in food security or transport or obviously frontline essential workers. And again, not to politicize what's happening, but the hearts and minds of philanthropic individuals, and we all can be philanthropic, whether it's, you know, at the, at the smallest level to the grandest, you know, sort of what I, I've been calling sort of the billionaire class that has a tremendous responsibility and influence right now in resource mobilization. So that certainty is definitely tied to a sense of timeliness. And what I think will happen is, uh, you know, immediately we saw a trend around many of the leading foundations and philanthropists diving into sort of COVID relief, everything sectorally that comes with that, whether it's, you know, healthcare, medicine, you know, food relief, you know, just taking care of folks who who need basic support right now. 
And I think at the same time, we've also seen in the creative world, the elevation of resource mobilization around innovation, you know, D-Nice, you know, just as for the culture, you know, DJ culture, like D-Nice is an absolute brand genius and case story and someone who's authentically been positioned to lead and continue to lead leveraging a culture which we know has major influence around the world, hip hop, right? Yeah. And, and not just only hip hop, but taking music culture and sort of, again, democratizing this experience around impact. When you have former presidents and first ladies in the room with marketing executives, you know, and moms at home, you know, yeah. it, it is, he poured his heart and authenticity into a translation that that mobilized this resource yeah. and that resource was the culture, that resource was the music, that resource was the time that everyone had on their hands and that emotional quotient to be actively available and engaged in creating a cultural experience that, again, will never be forgotten in this COVID era. Yeah. And, you know, I think the piece that I see leaping forward in terms of resource mobilization on a certain level has to be technology, has to be access to the tools to create and connect. And that ability, I think I've seen more from just a very practical level looking at school and education systems and looking at artists, you know, artists have more time than ever, depending on your medium. Do you have access to the tools and to the means to create? And if you do not, how do you lever your creative resources or the people around you to be certainly impactful and successful in driving the culture? right? And driving the culture means creating more, right? There may be some remix in there, of course, because we have lots of time to dive back. Yes. <laughs> and I, you know, I think that's also sort of something that if I could sort of project, I think, you know, the way we saw vinyl come back, I think we will continuously see a deep dive into the archival. And what is archival for each creative community or for the tech community? You know, there's so many different levels of creation to dive back into, to resource, to reinvent and reimagine and reshape for the future. So I think of all the things I was kind of like jogged around a few concepts there, but I think of all the resources that we have at best leverage most democratically right now is time. And I think those who are really diving into again, craft, culture, into the community in an authentic way are always going to be best positioned to be leaps ahead to set the foundation and the groundwork, you know? And again, I I always go back to hip hop. I was born out of the hip hop culture. And I think it's worth saying, you know, GFS being born in the Bronx and sort of everywhere in my life where I've had, you know, a cultural influence and connection, that bareness of what bore hip hop to its elite status right now, yeah. no one can question the power of hip hop. Yeah. Hip hop is, is if you think there's another form of music or culture that is more important or impactful than hip hop, then that person is an insane person. Like hip hop... <laughs> is everything. I try to tell folks when I travel, I see hip hop everywhere and the Absolutely. and the love that it has. And it's not just the music. Like, I think that's where people, it's the clothes, it's the emotions, it's the language. 
it's the dance. It's the dancing. <laughs> I mean, all of the, so many of these platforms that exist right now as the kind of tech leaders, whether it's like a TikTok, the most immediate that would come to most people's minds. Snap that has kind of reinvented itself into another sort of, you know, it's more popular than people think it is than its first kind of iteration. All of that is powered by hip hop, you know? Absolutely. Every, Absolutely. There's a language, there's a yeah. lexicon. And we have all of those cultural elements in hip hop and other areas of musical culture, but nothing that I think has come close. When we talk about the marketing, we talk about drafting new models, we talk about going back to the architecture of culture. I think it was really worthwhile to look back at hip hop culture, as it were, turn of the century from the 80s to now 2020, that 40 year era of history as a canon, a canon of not only culture, but industry and investment, investment that has ultimately bore, bore fruit as an impact to culture and society. Yeah. And, it, you know, when you were discussing a few things, there's a huge network effect that exists within hip hop, right? Or because now folks that were, you know, whether it's a, a D-Nice getting his start with Boogie Down Productions, right? Like he was always a DJ, but a rapper and kind of went through all these different iterations of photographer and a, a DJ that he was, I think he's a perfect example. And he might be talked about a lot in this moment, deservedly so. But the thing I always think about is like, you would see these lists of prominent global DJs, right? The guys getting like the Vegas residency. And it was always like a Calvin Harris and a David Guetta and all these kind of people who I'm like, you know, that ain't really my thing. So I'd be like, how are these people considered great DJs when I'm thinking, you know, Jazzy Jeff is the best DJ I've ever heard. You know, Kid Capri and D-Nice and so many others, Jay period and Guru and just ton young Guru. Um, so many folks that we know of as not only DJs for party, but producers, they make music. And I'd be like, these lists are garbage, right? right. But yet in this moment when D-Nice does his thing, he can pull all of these different people in the room, Absolutely. like you said, first lady. It's a network. It's yeah, a network, it's a right? network. It's a net Well, it's a network. It's, it's a network of networks, yeah. you know, and it's a theory that I talk about a lot in the work that we do at GFS as mm -hmm. well and, and building communities of culture and practice and, and ultimately creative communities that you constantly have to layer the networks that you bring into the room until there's these ultimate points of connectivity and alignment. And, you know, one of the things when you're talking about, uh, you know, the DJs that we love, you know, these are the pioneers. And I think there's a really interesting connection between pioneering technology, the time when like two turntables was like pioneering technology and like getting power line from like, you know, free resources in a park, right? Like that was a early form of not only pioneering, you know, electronic music and sound, but also the technology of how we gathered people. And so, you know, we think about hip hop being at the frontier of gathering people around technology and around electronic culture and music. And then we go to leapfrog to the EDMs, right? And so these sort of massive, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of folks in a field listening to music, you know, we, we may be able at, to, to sort of see this as a precipice and a new point forward at, to, to shifting and reshaping again 
right? So that D nice in a virtual room with a hundred thousand people, you know, now it's like, how many arenas have we filled already? You know, in this, this, um, you know, deep impact, I think is what people are craving. You know, I would be remiss to not bring up something that I thought was just telling of my age and my era versus say my daughter, my daughter is active, active in TikTok has a, you know, recall memory and this is all fun and culture for her. But it, at the same time, it's a tremendous amount of digital mapping that's happening mm-hmm. and information. And so we kind of have this dialogue around that. And I think similarly, what's happened with sort of these online massive parties and events is that you're getting this chat, you're getting the demographics of people who are in the room in a way that we could never physically create that level of network effect yeah, in yeah. real life, right? And so now... You know, I think that the versus sort of example I skipped into is one that I thought was tremendously exciting and telling where you have Teddy Riley versus Babyface and, you know, the technical snafu of it all of like, listen, it's not about the technology, man, but it's about the technology. Right. And that you got (laughs) to keep it so simple. And sometimes that's the most elegant outcome in font in design, in event flow are the simplest, most elegant, you know, expression. Yeah. Of so it's, the, it's a minimalist type of idea, right? Absolutely. Um, it's just like get mono, man. Just play that record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't need the towel. We don't need the band. Yeah. But, you know, to so much love. And I say that out of just the deepest reverence for a Teddy Riley, who oh, to me is that hip hop, that pioneering technology, like he created New Jack Swing. Like that is unreal, you know? And at the other end of the Titan and Friend table, you have Babyface, who's just like an absolute living legacy and genius, right? He himself is an instrument, right? There's no question in any of our hearts and minds, but that they can coexist in layering networks of networks of people, right? Who are spanning different generations and um, exist again within a hip hop context. Of course, right? obviously, yeah. It's, like a battle, it's a battle, a battle DJ event. It's a, This is the culture. And I think Timbaland and Soy Speeds will also be recognized as folks who said, hey, even in this time of, somewhat scarcity we're actually inverting the model and uh, and we're going with abundance right we're we're pushing the abundance model because we have so many number one records if you forgot that came out of our culture (laughs) right that not only can we hear them being played by dj d nice but we can actually bring the producers engineered pioneered and and use the technology point and you get so much from it i mean you get like you said you get the jokes online if you're if you're following on on twitter or you're following comments in ig you kind of see the commentary from people you don't know as well as from famous people i never i never knew tony braxton was so funny um but but now i know (laughs) that but you also get their stories right you get their their history and i think this is an important time to catalog this stuff you know like i i didn't know teddy riley produced the show right as a yeah. as a track right like as a teenager yeah right? and i'm as and i'm deep in music awesome. more than most and i didn't know that right the yeah. and the show is one of the biggest records because i was just going into junior high school and you know it was, it was a show it was like a six minute song on yeah. 98.7 kiss right like which was all crazy but in the time that we have left i want to get to 
two of our segments that we have on the show. We've covered so much. We and we, you know, me and you can talk forever, and we have. Um, so yeah. I want to get to off the dome, which are just going to be some quick questions. First thought, and some of them are kind of film related. I think they're all film related, actually, or maybe not. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right into it, and you can just give me your first thoughts, right? Off the dome. So the first one is. What is your essential movie watching snack? Popcorn, Twizzlers, or something else? Oh, something else. I like cheese. I love cheese and wine. I mean, I'm a little uh, Taleggio, a little <laughs> something sharp, some some Gouda and um, some wafers and a really so, juicy cat. So this is like when you're, we're talking about regular movie going, not oh, fancy, yeah, I mean, I bougie movie going. <laughs> Hot buttery popcorn. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, the theaters I go to. I, there, how, I mean, hey, I'm thinking of our GFS events. When you walk into our GFS screenings, which you've been to, I'm I'm talking about going downtown and Metrograph with a nice juicy cat. Exactly. And, you know, you're doing the you're doing the sweet stuff. I'm talking about just GFS style. GFS style. Yeah, no. AMC theater. <laughs> AMC hot buttery popcorn. Okay. Next <laughs> Is it acceptable? to bring your own snacks into the movie theater? Depending on the theater. Okay. And I'm really one to say, hey, there's so many allergies, so many different pre, you know, just preferences. I don't judge. I'm not a judger. Okay. In short, thou shalt not be judged by me. Okay. Bring it back. <laughs> as, as someone who's brought full meals into the movie theater before... I will never judge you. <laughs> Including, I have snuck a, a bottle of wine or two into the movie theaters as well. So, you know, I just I bury them in the bag, deep in the bag yeah. when they do that. Well, just be quiet. You know, like the, the worst piece is the big faux pas is like, you know, the hearing a bottle pop. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the crunchy, you know. Open everything before the, the trailers start going. Yeah. To be polite yeah. to your fellow uh, moviegoers. Now, my other, and you might have another two choices, but I find myself in like Black film lexicon often debating Love Jones versus Love and Basketball. Oh, this is so tough. I would have to say, wow, Love and Basketball, you know, this is, you're talking a Brooklyn girl who played basketball and like grew up in that era. So that was just like an opus. Spending time in Chicago, hats off to just that period and codifying what Midwest culture is like and how universal that is to American experience and how beautiful art is. So, I mean, I would say, you know, the diplomatic side of Cherie says a draw. Okay. Because sports versus poetry, I mean, poetry is forever. But if I had to edge in a favorite, love and basketball without a question. Okay, fair enough. And now my final one is, and this is, this might be tough. It's a little open-ended. Like if you had to direct someone to a must watch film, something that's maybe impacted you or something that you think some, everyone should see, what would that, that film be? Wow. This is an interesting question only because I have to say my passion in stories are just about truthiness and like getting the truth forward. And so the one of the films that have certainly been so truthy to me in a way that almost sometimes blurs sort of narrative and, and scripted work and just documentary and its timeliness is Do the Right Thing. 
it actually is the only film that everyone in GFS uh, watches the first week of class. And they usually watch it in New York at the Criterion Collection, and which is really special. And I just have to say, at almost any time in contemporary life, that film resonates like it was made yesterday. And so, yeah, I say that with, with the exception of there's so many great films to watch. And in terms of like documentary, is it just a genre that I think I have to just speak on right now? I mean, docuseries and documentary, you know, I, I grew up on PBS and I'm sure you did too, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of my leadership work revolves around lifting up diverse stories in documentary because we are at a moment where as much as we want to escape with all this new time that we have into stories that are, you know, gripping and magical and, you know, fantastical, we have to stay rooted and committed to the truth. And I just believe documentary is one of those absolute gifts of storytelling. And and right now you can access so many amazing documentaries from ITVS, POV, PBS, you know, first and foremost is is like a trusted leader and and a community that I'm a deep part of. Folks like, uh, you know, Firelight Media and Stanley Nelson. I mean, just the canon of documentary that lay out history that are real tools and guides to where we are now. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you haven't seen any of Stanley Nelson's films, uh, which at PBS we've been major supporters of, if you haven't seen the series Independent Lens, which pushes forward, you know, real point of view stories, social impact stories, I have to say this is a time to lean into that learning. Yeah, it's a perfect time to, to dig into that because um, I think we, we are at a void of truth telling in our culture. And so long-winded answer. This no, it's all good. Know. It's all good. And it right, could very well be a documentary. Yeah, very, very much <laughs> so. That we're in. Yeah, um, but, you know, I watched it. Um, I watched it a few months ago and it's a it's a film that I have this some weird with sometimes with music and songs and also with films that they're so powerful. It's like I almost can't watch them as much as they're available to be watched and do the right thing. I saw it recently a few months ago after having not seen it in a while, which was on purpose because it's like I said, it's so painful to watch in a good way, in the best of ways, because it does reveal these truths. I want to get us to the drop. And I feel like that answer also gave us some drops. So, you know, the drop are these tasty morsels, these little pieces of, you know, something good for our listeners to get their heads around or ears around or eyes around, whatever eyes, things they want to get around. So do you have a drop for us? A drop as in something that I have to take, take into my media diet right now. Yeah. Something that you think our listeners should be aware of. Wow. Well, I, for number one, I mean, a uh, humble brag, check out Ghetto Film School, check out our YouTube channel, check out 20 years of films made by young people. I think we just counted uh, 189 hours of programming. Okay. Uh, if you have the time, we have the time. That never gets old to me. Um, you can go to ghettofilm.org or you can go to YouTube and dial up our channel. And again, the, you'll find new stories. You'll find stories that are, are familiar to you from whatever perspective you come from, particularly young people just have the most fabulous vision and clarity around what, what really is happening or what is um, to come. And I just 
think that we can all see emerging possibility and future when we tune into what younger artists have to say and have to share with us unapologetically, authentically, and courageously. So Perfect. Um, Perfect. And all of this is going to be in the show notes. So my drop for this episode is actually two names of one, Arundhati Roy is like my intellectual role model. I love her work. She inspires me all the time. And I, I got a chance to listen in to a talk that she did with Imani Perry via Haymarket Books just this past week, which is available on YouTube and on their website and all this kind of stuff. And I've loved her forever. Her clarity of vision and her language is to me unparalleled. So it's not any particular work of hers, but it's just if she's not on your um, radar as a thinker, I would highlight her. And also um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's a new thinker for me, even though she's been at the forefront of um, the prison abolition movement for many, many years, but I've only very recently come in contact with her work. And again, she's another person, um, clarity of thought, clarity of language that I think the words and the way in which they frame issues, um, regardless of where they might be focused on, I think their larger thoughts are very applicable to many of the things we see in our world that need addressing. So Dati Roy and Ruth Wilson Gilmore as just names to dig into and just jump into their work wherever their work exists. And that's my drop. So this has been awesome. Thank you. I'm glad you were able to, we were able to make it happen and you joined me on the deep dive. Yes, well, we went deep and we went far. We always do. We always do. Always do. And I just, I think you are the ultimate drop. (laughs) I mean, deep dive. I mean, I can't wait to share this conversation and come back to it. And, you know, I think this is a platform that is truly the drop, right? Yeah, 100%. And I see the ripples of waves mounting this conversation and all the so, so many others that you've brought to the table. So just honored to call you a titan and a friend. Oh, same here. It's, it's a mutual love affair. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Phil, and can't wait to see you. See you again. Awesome. It's been a pleasure having Sharice Book Bailey join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website at thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.